Hey, sister, welcome back to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. As we welcome new members into our chapters or recruit potential new members to join us, the concept of being a part of something greater than yourself comes up so frequently. We want new students on our campuses to feel connected to community that we have found in our sisterhood. We want them to thrive academically and also feel networked for their future career aspirations. Philanthropy is often an area where we talk about this impact that we can make so much greater as a community of women than we could ever individually. But I think sometimes when we think about being a part of something greater than ourselves, we forget that we as individuals have a role to play in that something greater. Our guest today, Caitlin Devlin, is reflecting on the transferable skills that she gained being a sorority woman at TCU and how those are reflected in her professional work working for a nonprofit that actually one of our sororities supports, CASA. She will share a little bit more about her experience working for CASA and what she wished she would have known about the philanthropic work we do as sorority women as a collegian. She also has a trans spouse and is going to speak to how we can partner with the queer community in inclusion and really being committed to DEI work in our chapters. I am so excited for you to hear a little bit more of Caitlin's sorority journey. Here is my conversation with Caitlin. Hey sister, Cassie Little here to welcome you to Your Sorority Journey, a podcast for sisters to find guidance and confidence in any season of their membership. Our rockstar guests and I have intentional conversations, discuss unpopular topics, and provide relevant encouragement to be an extension of your sisterhood. So thanks for inviting us on your journey. Are you ready to dive in? Welcome to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me, Cassie. I'm excited too. Ever since Natalie started working for CASA, um, Natalie is our, our mutual friend, one of my leadership consultant sisters and Caitlin's coworker. I always thought that connection was so cool that she was working for a sorority's national organization. And Natalie's truly been a catalyst of like so many connections of people that we've ended up having on the podcast. So thank you for saying yes. I'm really excited to like bridge that relationship. Love it. Yeah. Anything Natalie asked me to do, I will say yes to. I love her. So awesome. Well, you live in Fort Worth and attended TCU. So why don't you little horn frog action? Why don't you like take us back? I know, um, I know you aren't like super connected with sorority still, but I always love to start our episodes with our guests, just like walking us through their sorority journey, because as you and I both know, it does play a role in everything that comes after graduation. Absolutely. Um, okay. I have a little bit of a funny story with how my sorority journey started. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think she'll get in trouble. It'll be fine. So we, um, I'm from out of state. I'm from Northwest Arkansas. Um, and I went to TCU. So I was new to the area, didn't know many other students. And I attended the, what we call frog camp. So first year experience, like the, the fun camp, that's not signing up for classes. Um, and so when I was there, one of the group leaders for my group. Um, she, her name is Michelle. She ended up being my grand big. Um, and what's, I love this already. (laughs) I know, I know. So 
was I I was signed up to rush Panhellenic, but I was a little bit nervous about it. I no one in my family had um, done recruitment and had joined a sorority, so I would have been the first one. So it was a little bit of a a big learning curve for me. Um, and so now that I work in philanthropy, I love I love I see the purpose that much more. We'll talk about that in a second. But at the time, I was really unsure, um, and I shared that with um, our group for Frog Camp. And then like the night, our last night there, um, Michelle, my group leader, pulled me aside at like this bonfire <laughs> that we were having. And it was like a little dark and her face was lit by the fire. And she was like, okay, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I'm in the sorority called Ada Iota Sigma. And if you want to join us, like you can, there's just, there's another option if you don't want to do panelytic, which I now know is like completely against the rules. <laughs> so to, to do that recruitment outside of like the standard recruitment, um, parameters and so it just makes me laugh so much that she was um she got me in that way and then ended up being my grand big so that was encouraging yeah yeah so I tangent that too so I um joined uh we called it his at TCU and now it's Phylam um but it was TCU's Christian sorority um and so it wasn't Panhellenic but I was still involved in a lot of Panhellenic stuff because I was just, I was that student who did everything. So I did totally. student government and yeah. um, I did um, all of the first year experience stuff. And so I had a lot of friends who were in Panhellenic sororities and fraternities. And it was actually my grand big who was also really involved in other Panhellenic sorority fraternity involvement with the Christian sororities of journey. So she was Miss Push Week um, a couple of years before I was Miss Push Week. And so it was a nice like legacy that, I had oh, wow. with, with my grand big. So and she really set this tone for kind of that involvement for the Christian sorority with other Panhellenic um, sororities and fraternities. So that yeah. was how it started. Um, yeah. yeah. Where's it taken you? Like, obviously um, you got super involved and maybe didn't even need his now Phylam to like get you involved, but like definitely kept you involved on campus. Like what role has that played in your life? now or how do you see the influence in your life now yeah absolutely so um the friendships I mean hands down maintaining those friendships from my sorority yeah. been critical um I met my spouse at TCU they were in bucks so the Christian fraternity so is that like real cute see like Christian sorority Christian fraternity they meet fall in love that whole thing um uh-huh. and so we have a lot of friends from from their experience in bucks as well um and so I think where it's taking me now is that I see the importance of that networking way more than I did when I was in college. And so I mm. see how critical it is to have a, um, a sisterhood of people yeah. who share common values, especially when it comes to things like philanthropy and yeah. just people to call on when it comes to you're working in the business world, you're working in a nonprofit like I am, you're doing fundraising for anything that you care about. Having that network is invaluable. And so I understand that a lot better um, now, now that I work yeah. in fundraising and philanthropy, um, and especially just the skill set that you get from having to put on events and putting on yep. mixers and putting on fundraisers, there's so many skills you learn. Um, I do think the Panhellenic sororities have an advantage with that because it is a little bit more um, formalized than it was for my um, Christian sorority. And so I see just the rigor being very helpful and giving you the skills to be successful now. So it's planted a lot of the seeds and now I see the value that much more. You know, something we talk about in her sorority journey all the time is transferable skills, right? Like you are gaining so much exposure to 
business structures and just like societal, um, I don't know, like practices while you're in college. If you're like the vice president of finance managing, uh, gosh, six figure at minimum budget, right? Or if you're the social chair who's coordinating with other groups on campus and uh, community vendors, right? Or if if you're the vice president of philanthropic service and you're helping cultivate awareness and exposure around a cause that you all stand behind and helping get other people behind that, there's endless opportunities to really grow um, and prepare for what's to come. And I don't like to call the sorority experience like society practice or training because you are like, like things are at stake when you're in sorority too, but the stakes or the relationships change in a business world, in a nonprofit, in relationships, right? All those pieces change after college. And it gives you that like foundation to look back on. And it's like, oh yeah, like I know Robert's rules of order or like, I know like how to fundraise or I know how to think creatively about getting people on board for a similar event. And I think that's just like a really cool uh, element of the sort of experience that we don't really talk about as often. And, And I'm here to validate all of that. Like it is so transferable, every ounce of it. Um, and even beyond just like the, the budgeting, the finance, the events, the, um, the rules of order, all of that in preparing you for like after college, even some of the little things that at the time I didn't fully understand, or even almost gave me a bad taste in my mouth. I see them as so much more valuable now. And so a couple of examples that are some of my favorites with this is dressing to pin. And so Mm. we didn't dress to pin in my Christian sorority. And I think there are some benefits to that for sure when it comes to inclusion. But now that I work in fundraising, dressing to pin is very important when it comes to meeting with different donors or um, going to different events or how you're wanting to convey yourself. And so I see it as a transferable skill, but it's also another way of looking at that. Um, We might talk about this in a second. My spouse is transgender and they're they're transgender femme. And so we are actually going through a lot with their transition with them learning how to do their hair, learning how Mm. to do makeup, learning how to dress. And it's things that they've always wanted. And a lot of trans people have always wanted to be able to do those things and never felt like they could. And so when thinking of sorority life, it makes, it just takes me back to like when we would get ready for mixers and just the sisterhood Mm -hmm. of helping each pick out outfits and say, oh, you look amazing in that. Those Mm. little things really do have so much like emotional and social value as well. Like for for the moment, then also a lifelong social, emotional um, development and just that sisterhood. And so being the spouse of a trans femme person, I see that those little things really do matter a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely, I do want to really dive into your thoughts on diversity and inclusion in the fraternity and sorority space, having met your spouse when they were in a fraternity and you were in a sorority, right? And I think there is a lot of um, focus right now. And I I do want to touch on this in a second, but there's a lot of focus right now on what place the fraternities and sororities should be and like what role they should play in in that space. And so I I really want to talk through like from your lens, looking back, like what that's been, but in your experience with this, like fundraising, right? Like you are like working for a national sororities philanthropy, obviously like not being in Panhellenic and now working with a Panhellenics organization that they support, like 
what do you wish that you would have known about fundraising and service about college? Like from that transition, like looking back, what are you like, man, I wish like the sorority Caitlin knew this. I wish the sorority Caitlin knew about a Rolodex and just all of the people, the the relationships you build and that that is um, the focus for changing the world afterwards. And so working in a nonprofit now, um, can I say what's nonprofit? And that yeah, is- yeah, okay, totally. Yeah. So I work for CASA of Tarrant County that's court appointed special advocates. And we are the um, national um, philanthropy, like the beneficiary from um, Cap Alpha Theta. And so we're so grateful for their support, all the events and um, all the different ways they support our mission to advocate for abuse and neglected children in foster care. Um, and so ha- working in fundraising now and looking back on um, Panhellenic experiences, especially having not been in a Panhellenic sorority, um, just seeing how much your community and your network, that's mm. the change agent to accomplishing your mission for a nonprofit. And so I think because I was very involved in TCU, I still have a lot of connections that, um, that weren't even connected to sorority, but I think especially seeing and working with our Theta chapter and the alumni chapters nearby, um, just them getting with their friends or sisters, um, they're sharing their Christmas list, um, inviting people to sit at a table, to purchase a table at an event. Um, that is how we advocate for abused and neglected children. Like that is how we accomplish our mission. It's so much more the community aspect rather than even the dollar aspect. Um, and so I, you know, I think not only just seeing how much of the network, the sisterhood adds to your ability to accomplish your mission in a nonprofit. But, and so in in addition to just your network, your Rolodex and that community is like, that's how you grow the agency and serve more kids. Um, Also just being able to throw really good events is a really important aspect. And so I know there's that fine line for a lot of sororities, um, you know, from working with the Theta chapter here, or I also teach at TCU still. And so I still work with a lot of students every semester. Um, who are in the thick of it. So when it comes to events, I know there, and any kind of philanthropy, I know there's this fine line between wanting the giving to be so sincere and you want your sisters to give because that's a natural, sincere desire for them and not just a checkbox that they're marking. Um, And so even when it comes to events, like you want people to come to the event because they care about the cause rather than just to have fun and hang out with their friends. But working at a nonprofit, like, it's, it's a great reason to attend an event that's a fundraiser yeah. that you're just going to have fun. Like yeah. if you just go to have a good time, that's a wonderful reason to attend a fundraiser. And so I really encourage um, people that we work with for special third-party fundraising that yeah, like you want it to be about the mission, but especially that first event where people are just learning about your agency, keep it lighter, get them engaged, make it where they're so curious and they're wanting to learn more afterwards. Yeah. Want them to have a good time. You really yeah. do. There's so many different causes, and there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. So when people are having to pick and choose, like which fundraising event should I attend? They're going to want to go to the one that's the most fun, and that's great because that gets them in the door. And then if they have that good experience and they reflect back on it, they met other people in their community, then that will lead to like a follow up conversation where it's more meaningful, yeah. more tailored to them. Um, and so having a fun event is a great way to, to further a nonprofit. Um, yeah. 
That's such an interesting perspective, right? Because we talk in sorority world of like educating and like creating awareness and the vice president of philanthropic service can get so in the weeds or philanthropy or service or whatever can get so in the weeds of what the event is going to look like that we like miss the service aspect of it. We miss the, the population or the community that we're, that those dollars are impacting, right? Because CASA needs those dollars, right? Maybe even more than they need people to realize that there is like the whole extent of the situation. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that's hard for us to understand because as organizations like working toward intentionality and like, yeah, intentionality, we, like you said, we have so only so many hours in a day, right? Like every chapter and organization on a campus has their own philanthropy, their own events, their own dollars that they're trying to raise. And Sometimes it just is about like, how do you just bring people together? How do you focus on like building intentional relationships to build a foundation where you can share that, that mission, that purpose, that reason that you host these events, that reason that you come together as a sisterhood to host an event like this. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm here to second and validate like all of that. It's, it's, if, if this helps in a way, I feel like having a good time having warm, positive memories, having a relationship where you can continue the conversation after a fundraising event that gives birth to intentionality. And so we can only be intentional if we know enough about the mission, but sometimes a lot of these missions, especially for CASA, we work with abused and neglected children. That's a lot for a lot of people to hear. And Mm -hmm. that can be very triggering for a lot of people because of how common it, it is. And so I think to really disarm that, that fear response sometimes when you talk about very heavy philanthropic activities, or even when it's a lighter cause, but it's still really, really important. I think the relationships and the good memories are what are going to keep people coming back to the conversation. They have the person to come back to and they have the, essentially the chemical reward. They had a good time. They, they want to learn more about it. Um, that gives birth to that intentionality. And you as a chapter know that this is something bigger than yourself, right? Like even if your audience, even if your community is like still learning and like the door is still open, like you have created relationships with the community, which is super important. And you are making a difference by those dollars raised and the time that you spend. I'm like you said, I'm sure that you in the work that you do with the local theta chapter, like even that relationship with like the Christmas gifts or whatever, like maybe they aren't meeting the children, but they're seeing like a little bit more like specifics of that work in action, which is motivation for them to go back and like host that kind of event. Exactly. Yeah. So donors want to see that they matter and how they matter. And so showing them like you made a difference in this way, this way, and this way, that's, what's going to keep them coming back. Um, and I will say too, you can tailor it the way you talk about your philanthropy to your chapter. It can be different from how you talk about it over parents weekend or to right. other sporties, fraternities for different, you know, events you're hosting. Um, and so there can be a lot that is tailored to the chapter just in-house to, to build up that intentionality and let them know more about the mission. And then you can really focus on like, let's just have a good time, learn a little bit. Um, and you can send some follow-up mailers or something like that afterwards for outside of the chapter too. So it can be very yeah, that's so yeah. good. So I like that advice of like the message or the like presentation doesn't have to be the same for each and every group you work with. What other advice would you have for women these sorority women on how to take advantage of being a part of something bigger than themselves around philanthropy? 
That is a great question. So I know that we often have interns that help with events. And so if you want to um, brush up on event planning, in addition to all that you do for the chapter already, um, I know at our agency, we take interns. I know a lot of nonprofits take interns yeah. as well. Um, I will say for a lot of nonprofits and philanthropic causes, there are some really important protections there where we mm-hmm. keep clients confidential, especially for minors. And so go into it knowing that it might be like licking envelopes. And I know that's really tough, but that is what nonprofits really need um, is, is that part as we also work to protect um, the vulnerability of our, of our kids. Uh, with that though, there, there really are so many transferable skills. And so I know at least when I was in school, there was a big push where it's like, oh, I want to go work with kids and I want to have that hands-on experience. Nonprofits need marketing people. They need accountants, mm-hmm. they need um, MBAs. And so your whatever your professional um, feel, like that can benefit your philanthropic cause. And so if you are majoring in English, you could help out with copywriting. If you are majoring in marketing, you could help out with figuring out where to place different advertisements. And so- yeah. You know, it can be a lot of work for nonprofits to manage interns, but I know that that's a big um, area that we've had some really great partnerships with our local chapter. And in addition to the, the special events. That's so good because I think sometimes we look at service specifically as like intentionally being with the population, like that's marginalized. Right. But sometimes that's like not what's best for that community. Right. Depending on where they're at, what they're struggling with, what the cause that we are raising money for is about, right? And so sometimes we just need people to serve in a way that's like not as glamorous or like Instagram worthy, right? But is just like genuinely like supporting this greater concept of like something bigger than yourself. It's like serving in a role in recruitment that's like in the back, helping organize like the upcoming party, not like on the floor talking to a PM, right? Exactly. And I think yeah. it, it's so important to have people in those roles and to see that and to give where you can, even if it's not where maybe you want to. Yeah. And I think this is a very challenging thought. I think for a lot of, so one of the classes I've taught at TCU is um, child development. And so developmentally for a lot of people when they're in college, um, it, their brains are telling them to think about themselves. Their brains Mm -hmm. are telling them to think about, um, what's important to them, who they are, what they want their features to be like, how, how, what makes them special. That's developmentally appropriate for college students to be very concerned with, with themselves. Um, and that is what, that gives a foundation for being able to take care of others. When you get older, you know how to take Mm -hmm. care of yourself You can take care of someone else later. Um, and so with that, it comes a challenge of, I think for philanthropy, it's really important to decenter yourself if you're trying to figure out how you are part of something greater than yourself. So the idea mm. of like, okay, we want to be a part of something greater than ourselves, that immediately decenters us, that immediately gets us out of the focus and onto like that greater thing. Um, and so developmentally, that is hard for college students to do, and that is healthy and normal. And um, but I think decentering yourself and focusing on the cause as much as you are physiologically able to do um, can really help with that because it, it is we need a lot of work that's not glamorous and that's not Instagram worthy. Um, but that's how you really become involved with a cause greater than yourself. Caitlin, that's so good. And I think about um, I think that's not only unique or special to philanthropy, but I think decentering yourself is just like 
a part of transformative change and like impactful growth. If that is philanthropic, or if that is changing the way the sorority experience has been done in the past to ensure that it's like making a difference in the future. And I think about this honestly a lot with diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically after George, George Floyd's murder last year, right? When there was just like this heightened um, awareness in the fraternity and sorority space that like we are we've caused a lot of like racial injustice. We have um, caused a lot of like harm and hurt in minority groups that have been interested in membership or just like our community members. And so obviously with your experience, um, having been Greek with your partner and in this like wave of diversity, equity, inclusion, awareness, like fraternities and sororities have maybe unintentionally centered themselves of like, this is what I'm doing. I want you to know that I am an ally so that maybe like we don't get in trouble or we are able to like move past this like heightened awareness around like where we've done wrong. Knowing what you do about the fraternity and sorority experience and like being an advocate for inclusion in the ways that you are, what do you wish fraternity and sorority communities could do or would have done when you were a student around DEI? That is a great question. Um, and a lot packed in there. <laughs> I know, and, and, and there is, there is, that's the nature of it. And, and these are really important questions and we should be spending a lot of time unpacking a lot of these things and all the different aspects of it. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm a white woman. I'm a Southern white woman. I'm um, cisgender. I mean, I was assigned um, female at birth and that's how I identify. I love being a woman. And so from my perspective, it's still very limited as far as when it comes to the DEI um, experience. Some of the things I've learned from my journey with my spouse, and like we said earlier, my spouse was in Bucks and they came out about a year ago as transgender and transgender femme. So they're transitioning um, right now. Right now they identify as non-binary and their pronouns are they, them. Um, and so non-binary can mean a lot of different things. Um, and so that is also a common part of people's transition sometimes where it's, it's a little bit more of a gradual um, transition. And so from our process of coming out, so they came out um, to me a year ago and then I realized that I'm bisexual and I've always been bisexual, but so much of my Southern white culture um, is also very heteronormative, meaning that I was taught at an early age that, oh, like I'm a girl, so I should only date guys. And that's the only mm -hmm. option that I'm given. And it wasn't just church culture, which I was, I grew up very evangelical, but it was also just the larger culture um, and just, it's very um, hegemonic. And so as far as um, white culture and in the South, it's still very Christian, even if it's not designated as religious. Um, and so for me, I had to process what that meant to be bisexual and to be married to a trans person and what that means for our two beautiful children. Um, and from that, I learned a lot about white culture that I didn't know before because privilege made it where I didn't have to look at it and mm -hmm. privilege made it where, oh, it seems like everyone operates under these same terms. Um, and so one of those aspects is the idea that for a lot of white culture, it seems like it's a very common thing where we should all 
be very uniform and we should mm. all think the same. And if someone has a different opinion, well, we need to go in and kind of correct them and explain how they're wrong about this and that they need to agree with us. And sometimes we can get really fragile if we feel like people, their experiences are different from ours and what that means about the validity of our experiences or our thoughts or our culture. And I didn't realize how common of a thing that was for white cultures until I was going through the process of coming out because I'm still a white woman, but there, in order to be resilient as a queer woman, I really had to examine white culture and the privilege that came with that mm. to gain a lot of resiliency um, as a queer person. And so it was to be pretty uh, straight with it. So I, um, you know, I, my, our family doesn't, isn't entirely accepting. They still love us. We still hang out, but there is still this element of, I know they disapprove and it was an interesting thing for me, having gone from like a white culture where I thought I was straight, I was used to thinking like, oh, like we have to get on the same page with stuff. And then when I was coming out, I thought, oh, they're going to disapprove of this. And that's fine. They can disapprove. Mm. Like they, they, you know, it's not for them. That's okay. We can move on. Um, and so and for my family, it, it is still of a crisis where they really do want to fix it. And they still want to get us on the same page and make sure we believe all the right things. And, and I, I see that a lot in Panhellenic culture uh, where it's, it's very much part of like the whiteness where it's, oh, like we all have to be thinking the right way and that individuals lived experiences aren't as valid as the, the ideals or the values or what the leader says. And, and so I think that, I imagine that can be a barrier for a lot of diverse people who wanna join Panhellenic life, um, where their cultures might be more, oh no, like you, your lived experience is just as valid as someone else's lived experience. Mm. And um, your knowledge is just as valid as someone else's. And there's more tolerance for not only disagreement, but there's more respect for individual differences. Mm. And I see that as something that's not as prevalent in white culture. And I, I see that as something that's been transferred to Panhellenic culture um, because of how wide it's been. Not because it's specific to Panhellenic culture, but because that, that is part of the culture of the people who have been leading it for so long. But in a way it has become so normative where it's like, oh, we're, we're all on the same page. We all, we all act the same. We present the same front. Right. I can see that as a barrier for diverse people joining um, Panhellenic groups. So I think more tolerance of different ideas and more respect for um, individuals' ideas and that are varying and differing, that could be really helpful for recruiting more diverse people. Well, and even talking about recruiting more diverse people, if we think about what's happening right now with sorority recruitment, they often wear the same thing, do their hair in one, two, or three different ways. Like individuality, it's a challenge to embrace individuality in sorority recruitment when there are such strict barriers and expectations put around the experience of going through sorority recruitment. And unfortunately, I think the same thing is being projected onto the women pursuing that experience. And maybe even why you had some anxiety around it before you went through is like, well, I have to look a certain way. This is like the kind of outfits I can wear on this day. This is the kind of outfit I can wear on this day. And I better get it checked by like 40 different people before I actually show up to a chapter wearing it. And I think that is so insightful, right? Like, unfortunately, like with the 
hurtful and harmful past of white culture, we can track back the same harmful practices in fraternity and sorority culture as they were started by Protestant white men and women. Um, And throughout history, as we have like grown to be more inclusive, unfortunately, some of those like traditions and like historical roots have continued. Right. And it's hard to break down those things when we are nonprofits. And a thing that we don't like to talk about in the fraternity and sorority world is we are nonprofits with large support coming from donors, older donors who shared our membership and had expectations of what the membership experience should look like. And so I see a lot of like hesitancy from national organizations to make changes in the best interests of the members today, what they need today because of the donors experience 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and we don't want to talk about that. Right. Like, I know it, it's a, it's very threatening. It is. I get it's very threatening to, to change the way that we used to do things and to, to make it where more people who don't look like us have more of a voice and more power. And, and it, it feels like a threat to our sense of power. And, mm. and so we want to keep our money where we're going to maintain our power. And so I didn't know that's like a real deep dive into it but it's, it's i i see that fear in a lot of yeah um, my you know my whole family they're white boomers yeah. and so like i see that fear of usurpation and i i used to think that like oh there's no need to fear like an usurpation like that's not what's happening when people who look different from you are rising up through society that's just they're just gaining like the same footing that you once had but i think in a way it is usurpation to them because they so I think something I've been thinking about as a queer white woman who, you know, is from the South, I think it is hard for us to untangle what does whiteness look like if we're not in charge, if we're not the ones with the power and with the money. Mm. And, you know, we're for alumni, there might be a small voice, but they have a lot of money behind it. And I think it's really hard to untangle who are we as white people if we don't have a hoarded amount of power and wealth. And so mm. I think any, so I think it, it is a threat to, to, to wealthy white people's power when other people do come up. And so, so, and that just to explain that fear response and that doubling yeah. down and um, just to, to really like almost logically be very defensive about like, no, it has to be this way moving forward, being very mm-hmm. to open up because it, it is, it is kind of threatening that, that power system for them. And that's one of the looking at it through power too, when it comes to that individuality for diverse people who may consider joining Panhellenic, them focusing on their individuality and not um, tailoring themselves to fit the group. Yeah. That is a form of resistance and resilience for, <laughs> yeah. well, for people of color, um, queer people and people of color, they're very different groups, but there's a lot of overlap. But one of the ways that we do find resiliency is in loving ourselves, it's in not trying to be someone who we're not, um, is loving ourselves and thinking that, you know, we have worth and value regardless of what other people tell us. That's how yeah. a lot of children of color are raised. That's how a lot of queer people operate. And, and so it's also, it's that tough thing. It's, it's tough to ask someone who is marginalized to deny their individuality in order to join the group because that's asking them to become less resilient 
as yeah. well. And, and you don't see a lot of people giving that up, honestly, either yeah. you don't see a lot of queer people or a lot of people of color joining pandemic lives because they're not going to give that, that really critical part of their resiliency and their self-love up. Um, and that's how they maintain their power too, is by not, by not giving away too much. So, you know, it's a little yeah. bit odd. Oh no. And I think, I think it's a really good, um, transition to thinking about how, because I believe that people of color, the queer community, like can benefit from what fraternity and sorority fundamentally has to offer, right. Which is brotherhood or sisterhood and belonging on campus, right. Those populations need it just as much as the, individuals on college campuses who look like the founders, right? Like the, if being non-traditional doesn't mean there's less value, if anything, I think it's about like reevaluating what we're considering traditional and how we're stereotyping the men and women, um, and individuals who find homes in our organizations. And so I think around individuality and like giving people the opportunity to like own who they are unpack what they believe and like what makes them them how do you think sororities specifically I say sororities because I don't mess with fraternities I like I know I know my niche like I I kind of stay um on the women's side of things like how do you think sorority chapters could grow in including and supporting the LGBTQ community um for those who are seeking membership and those that are like members of the community at large who don't want to be part of the community, but just like need our support. Yeah, absolutely. So it, I, I like that you say like need our support is I think that is a good starting point when it comes to looking at how to um, reach out, support diverse communities that are um, different from typical Panhellenic groups. Um, I, I think a lot of times it, it comes to like asking the question, like, do they need our support? Like, do they, do they need us? Like, and, and to that question, really asking, like, what are they already doing? Um, I think is a great place to start. If you are wanting to do outreach or support or things like that, see like what they're already doing and really centering on them rather than on us. And so instead of like, what do we need to do? What are they already doing? Um, Cause in thinking about our conversation today, I couldn't help but think just about ballroom culture for a lot of um, black and brown LGBTQ people. Um, because so in you know the early earlier 20th century, they, you know, the white gays, um, G-A-Y-S, the white gays uh, had a lot of clubs where they could have that safe space where they're all um, LGBTQ, but they're all white. And they often segregated um, or just mm. didn't allow um, black and brown queer people to join them. And so from that we um, saw the rise of ballroom culture. And so you could see it portrayed now on shows like Pose or HBO's Legendary. Um, and in ballroom, it was black and brown queer people creating their own environment. They created their own pageants like the white gays did that they weren't allowed access to. And a lot of the, the categories or the themes for the balls are often around how do we love ourselves? Like how do we build up ourselves? And so you'd have categories where it would talk about like realness or there'd be categories where you're showing off like really nice designer clothing. And so it's, it's saying that like, yeah, this group over here says we're, we don't belong, 
but we're going to show that we do belong and we can be just as great as them. And this yeah. is how we build that self-esteem. And, and so with ballroom, they had houses, which are, much, <laughs> which are a lot like sorority chapters. Um, and so they were families, um, they were mixed, uh, gender mixed orientation and so but they're all essentially black and brown queer people and so they had houses there was a house mother sometimes a house father and they would help take care of each other they would live together and they would walk together too so they'd have categories where the entire house would participate and then other categories where individuals were would participate and so to me it seems like that's almost like um it parallels panhellenic life um and that they weren't allowed and for reasons of race and for queerness, but also they created their own families and their own right. sisterhoods and brotherhoods. Right. Um, and so it could be also just supporting them and what they're already doing. Yeah. Um, but in taking notes. So for ballroom, that individuality is really um, celebrated. And there have been some critiques, especially when it comes to things like realness uh, as we've gotten older, where it's, oh no, some, they, you know, they're, they really do celebrate that individual person and that spirit and those differences. And yeah. they found a good way to do that in community. Um, mm. And so I think it's a lot of note-taking too from what yeah. other communities are already doing. Yeah, I love that, right? It's it's not even, it's creating, I think there's some ownership on our part to like create space for people, those communities who see our communities and they want to be a part of, but also like looking around us and seeing like where minority groups are like embracing who they are and like supporting one another and asking them like how we can like partner with them or like recognize what they are doing instead of needing to like come in and like create that for them. I love that. That's so good. Um, anything else that you would like challenge sorority listeners who are part of communities, um, who might be either like a little intimidated at I think it's like a lot of pressure that comes with being in an organization that like is so much greater than yourself, whether it is like contributing to like a major cause or being a part of like social activism. Like there's a lot of pressure that comes with wearing letters while participating in those things. Obviously it gets you a lot more access to like, obviously a chapter of 150 can raise a lot more money than you can by yourself. Um, but it's a lot of pressure to like wear letters with a group of members who all do think differently than you and to be recognized as like one, what advice would you have for people who are like weighing that tension? I would say that no matter where you go and no matter what groups you join, no matter what you do, it's always in community. Just go back to those relationships, go back to the people who are around you Mm. um, and pour into each other and have them pour into you. And I think through that, practicing respecting autonomy and individuality the best that you can and so because yeah. it's it, we're all we're all learning we're, no one knows what they're doing they're all figuring it yeah. out as they go um but really emphasizing the relationship the sisterhood the community um over over other things while also respecting that autonomy of the individual and I think yeah. learning how to navigate that is not just a transferable skill for business that's a transferable skill for marriage for parenting yeah. for friendships Um, And I think that also is a really important skill when it comes to wanting to work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so respecting communities and respecting the relationships that are already there and um, and respecting their autonomy and their own voice and their Mm. own lived experience 
um, as being valid, even if it's different from yours. And so you can practice that in Panhellenic groups, but also practice that outside of it too. And so it's one of the most valuable transferable skills, I'd say. That's amazing. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me today and talking through some, some big topics going into the sorority experience this year. I think this is like really helpful in setting the tone for the academic year ahead of our women. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And so good luck to everyone in recruitment. You can do it. Hang in there and have fun. Something that really resonated with me that Caitlin shared today was the importance of decentering yourself when you're a part of something greater than yourself. So often, I think when we are giving our time serving in the community or supporting our national philanthropy. We want to get the photos. We want to let people know what we've done. Same thing goes, I think, with diversity, equity, and inclusion work. When we are making statements or or hosting implicit bias trainings, we want people to know that we are doing the work. I think sometimes, though, being a part of something greater than yourself requires us to allow the group or community that we are serving, that we are supporting to shine, to be elevated while we remove the emphasis from ourselves. Maybe that means our work goes without being noticed, but the work is being done. I want you to think about going into the fall semester, while it is so important to highlight the good things sorority women are doing, to share those things so we have things to talk about at our fundraisers, so we can be better allies in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I want you to think about how you can be a little bit more authentic in elevating the communities that you want to serve, that you want to be a part of rather than focusing on centering yourself in the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, and we are so excited to support you in more hard conversations like these going into the fall semester. Thanks for tuning in to the Your Sorority Journey podcast this week. If this episode left you with any guidance or confidence to navigate your sorority membership, we would love to hear from you. Share a screenshot of this episode on your Instagram story and tag Her Sorority Journey so we can know what resonated with you. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you listen so more sister friends can find this guidance just like you. Here for you always, sister. 